Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times. And it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. Last weekend, seven of the most powerful countries in the world met on the tiny peninsula of Carbis Bay in Cornwall. The president's helicopter went over my house and it was something to see. It's like an alien craft, really. We don't see things like this in Cornwall. It was the first time world leaders were meeting since the pandemic began and there was a lot to discuss. Vaccines, climate change and China. But how much did they actually achieve? In some ways, these summits are as much about the optics as they are about the substance. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, what really happened at the G7? Was there anything about this summit that really surprised you? Something you hadn't expected? Oh, God. Uh, um, <laughs> the weather. <laughs> <laughs> Oliver Wright is the policy editor at The Times. He spent the weekend in Falmouth, where the press pack was being kept at bay, almost an hour away from the site of the summit. I mean, they were very lucky, weren't they? I mean, you only have to think about the planners who were deciding where they were going to hold this summit. And, you know, on a beach in Cornwall always had to be a bit of a risk, even in early June. Because in some ways, these summits are as much about the optics as they are about the substance. And, you know, if you have a windswept beach or dark, cloudy skies, it's the headline writer's dream. And actually, in some ways, it can... It can overshadow the whole thing and it can have an impact on the way in which it's reported. Given that, you know, you're right, this is as much about the optics as it is about the substance. Who was responsible for taking all the the pictures that we were seeing of sort of leaders elbow bumping, First Lady and Carrie Johnson on the beach? Is that, are those sort of press photographers or? Well, there's a bit of controversy around this because Boris Johnson, when he came into office, decided that in Obama style, he was going to have his own personal photographer on the Downing Street payroll. So some of those photographs weren't actually taken by news photographers at all. They were actually taken by a, a Downing Street photographer, which has caused quite a lot of chagrin around the press photographers of what they're allowed access to, you know, where they can go. So given that the journalists are 
kept a, a, at a very safe distance away. And even a lot of the pictures are being taken by number 10 and are sort of quite carefully curated. Given that a lot of people are judging this G7 on, on the images we've seen, was there a contrast between what was actually happening behind the scenes? The summit leaders, Johnson, wanted this to be about you know, the G7 family getting back together after the sort of the trauma of the Trump years. They did hit that message, they did get it across. But, you know, to my mind, and I think rather unfortunately from the British point of view, it was slightly you know, dominated by Brexit, by the row, firstly with the Americans, then um, spectacularly with President Macron of France, which, to be honest, was rather driven by the Brits, certainly the latter part of it. With all of these very carefully curated images of, of this wonderful conference and everybody getting on very well and lots of sort of socialising amongst the leaders, what was the image that Britain was trying to pull off from, from the G7? And was it already in jeopardy before it began? It was very interesting. I mean, from the British point of view, from Johnson's point of view, this was about launching, you know, global Britain on the global stage. We may have left the EU, but we are still an important player. Look, here is Britain playing host to world leaders in Cornwall, setting the global agenda, pushing them to do things on Johnson's key aims of climate change, building back better from COVID, corralling world leaders. And yet it did turn into a sort of slanging match between Britain and France, of which we are <laughs> very, very familiar. A productive first day, but less so today, with the rift over the Northern Ireland Protocol showing no sign of narrowing. What was really interesting was Macron and Johnson had a private bilateral meeting on the Saturday morning in Carbis Bay. And what happened was, mysteriously, goodness knows how, the Sunday newspapers were tipped off and given a story that Macron had said to Johnson that he didn't really regard Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom. This is all about sausages. So Johnson is said to have said to Macron, how would you feel if you couldn't get to lose sausages in Paris? To which Macron is said to have replied, at least a British interpretation of it, yes, but you know, Toulouse is part of France. And this obviously irritated Johnson, and Northern Ireland is part of it as well. This was then briefed into the media, and then on Sunday morning, after these stories appeared, the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, did a round of interviews, at which obviously he was asked about this, and he said, oh, well, I can't comment on private meetings, but then sort of lays it on thick and says, but, you know, any such claims are outrageous. <laughs> So they very much created this row with Macron. Why, why do you think that would be? Um, my suspicion is that both sides were worried that the other side was going to wrong foot them. So they just tried to get in there first. And just for people who've heard Sausage Walls and Northern Ireland in the headlines again, when they probably weren't expecting it, give us just a, a quick reminder of what this row is about. Yes, it is complicated. <laughs> when Boris Johnson was desperate to get the withdrawal agreement over the line in 2019, he desperately needed a deal. He agreed something with the EU called the Northern Ireland Protocol. And what the Northern Ireland Protocol does in a nutshell is keep Northern Ireland within the EU's single market and customs union. So although it's part of the UK, economically, to a large extent, it's actually part of the European Union. Now, that means that the kinds of checks that would happen on 
products going from England to France now have to go from England or Britain to, to Northern Ireland. Now, sausages, it's a real curiosity, sausages, because it's, it's an odd thing for there to be a problem with. It's not just sausages, it's any raw meat that has been processed. There is an EU rule, which is years and years old, which basically bans the import of any processed raw meat into the European Union. Now, that really hasn't been an issue because other countries haven't really wanted to import raw processed meat because it doesn't, doesn't really make any sense to do so. It has a reasonably short shelf life. And if you freeze that meat, interestingly, you can bring it in. But within the Northern Ireland context, within the sort of supermarket supply chains with supermarkets in Britain supplying products to their stores in Northern Ireland, of course, it, has a, it does have a huge impact. But that, that is basically the route. It's about an old EU law that now applies to Northern Ireland. The Northern Ireland Protocol was never meant to be on the agenda at the G7. It was supposed to be settled in a meeting between Lord Frost, the UK's Brexit negotiator, and his EU counterpart on Wednesday, just before the G7 jamboree rolled into town. But the negotiations stalled, and the shadow of the Northern Ireland Protocol suddenly loomed large over the summit. And not just in the meetings between the UK and Europe, a Times front-page scoop on the day the summit began showed the strain it was placing on the special relationship with America too. Yes, it was one of those one of those leaks that you are really very very pleased to have as a paper, um, <laughs> even if the government was less pleased that we had it. It was a readout, really, as it were, of a meeting that took place between the Chargé d'Affaires at the American Embassy, who, because Biden has yet to appoint an ambassador to the UK, is the most senior American diplomat in London, and Lord Frost, that took place the week before last in the run-up to the summit. And it was a very odd meeting because it was at the request of the Americans, and it was to do a certain thing, which, frankly, I'd not heard of before, which is to issue something called a démarche. Now, perhaps the best way of describing a démarche is we've yes, always what heard... what is that? Well, we've heard of, you know, the Foreign Secretary summoning the ambassador into the Foreign Office to give them a sort of ticking off. Hmm. And a démarche is really quite similar to that, except it's where the ambassador of a country goes to the equivalent of the, the Foreign Affairs Ministry and issues a ticking off to that government. So rather than it being in the host state, it's in this state where the embassy is. And it is a formal thing that is recognised within you know, diplomatic protocol. Have we had many of those from America before? We could find no examples of similar such things. Now, it yeah. is true to say that you know, they're not always publicised, and indeed no one wanted to publicise this one. So it is possible that they've happened in, happened in the past. But you know, we could certainly find no, no documented evidence of any. And going into this summit, there was an awful lot of, sort of speculation about, you know, this is Britain defining its new role in the world, but it's also America defining its role in the world post-Trump. How did that play out and, and where, where is the special relationship? I think Biden, by and large, got what he wanted from the summit, which was 
to send a message out that, you know, America's back, the family's back together, the West, although it's not entirely an accurate way of phrasing the G7, but the, the, the West has got its mojo back. He wanted that message particularly because obviously he's going to go to Switzerland and he's got his first meeting with Vladimir Putin. So he wants mm. to go into that meeting off the back of a successful G7 summit. There's obviously there's a NATO summit in Brussels and he wants to show to Putin that, you know, Trump is gone. There's no more pandering to Russia. The West speaks with one voice and, you know, we don't like what you're doing. And I think to a large extent, he he succeeded in that agenda. I think in some areas of the communique, it was less ambitious than the Americans would have liked. I think they were looking for some words, particularly on China, condemning human rights abuses in China. They wanted China named in the communique, but that was kind of vetoed effectively by some of the sort of European dubs, as it were. Who was reluctant to, to go hard it's on hard that? to know, but we do know that in a draft, China was written in there, but when the final communique came out, it wasn't named directly. Beneath all of the pictures and all of the sort of fun barbecues, this was supposed to be a summit that achieved several really big things. I mean, we, there was a lot of talk beforehand about climate change, for example. What did it actually achieve? It was good on words. I think it was less impressive on you know, actual detailed substance. We need to make sure that as we recover, we level up across our societies and we, we build back better. And I actually think that we have a huge opportunity to do that because as G7, we are united in our, our vision for a cleaner, greener world, a solution to the problems of climate change. So if you, if you take climate change, there were two key elements to it. The first was a proper piece of financing for developing countries to create renewable energy projects. Now, you know, the COVID and climate change are weirdly inextricably linked at this point. It's, we can forget about it sitting in the UK, but the whole world is trying to deal with COVID. We have you know, the money to roll out a vaccine campaign. That isn't true of many countries who hardly anyone in their populations have been vaccinated. And there's a real feeling that until globally you get COVID under control and vaccinate people across sub-Saharan Africa, South America, parts of Asia, whose governments don't have the money or access to the vaccines, then it's very hard to ask them to spend money, which they frankly don't have, decarbonising their economies. They're going to say, well, you know, I haven't got the money to pay for it. So part of the ask of the G7 summit before they went in was for richer countries to provide both finance for COVID vaccines and finance to tackle climate change. Now, they talked a lot about that kind of thing, but ultimately there was not much new money pledged. Secondly, Biden was pushing this really an alternative to the China foreign investment, which is known as the Belt and Road, and they put large amounts of money into Africa and, and strategic countries where they want to, to grow their influence in terms of building infrastructure projects. Now, Biden wants to create a Western version of the Belt and Road initiative. We wrote about it earlier this week. Johnson has talked about it. It's this idea of a sort of Marshall Plan for Africa to tackle climate change. Now, the summit agreed that this was a thoroughly good idea, but the summit didn't put any new money behind it. So the question is, when? And 
you know, certainly you talk to people who know about things like climate change conferences and COP, they say the time is running out for the West to build an alliance with developing countries to put pressure on places like Brazil, places like China, who have you know, really high emissions, to create that alliance to put pressure on middle-income countries to decarbonize. That alliance is, is fracturing because the West isn't putting its money where its mouth is, and it didn't put its money where its mouth is in Carbis Bay. So the question is, can it do that in time? You, you mentioned vaccines too. That was one of the, you know, one of the announcements that at the final closing press conferences was sort of held up as a, a real achievement. Almost instantly, Gordon Brown was out sort of pouring, <laughs> pouring water over that. Boris Johnson really has got to think, are we to leave this problem uh, to the G20, to next year or the year after? Because on the basis of the evidence I see, uh, the whole world will not be vaccinated by the middle of 2022. So what is the truth on, on the vaccine announcement? Is, is that massive progress? Uh, it's progress. I don't think it's massive progress. I mean, you know, the figures are a bit stark, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, South America and parts of Asia, you know, it's estimated you probably need to vaccinate 4 million people. So that's potentially between sort of 6 and 8 million doses and the G7 promised a billion by the end of next year. So it's a definite start, but it's, you know, it is only a start. And I think there is a realisation that until the world has got COVID under control, no one is safe. And, you know, there is obviously a danger that while COVID is still spreading, new variants could come along that are, you know, vaccine resistant and you, you know, effectively could have to start the whole process all over again. So, yes, I mean, you know, I don't think anyone can be pretty churlish to say that, you know, promising to donate a billion doses of vaccine wasn't pretty laudable, but is it up to the scale of the challenge? You know, answer, probably not. And how about attacks on tech companies? That was one of the things that we was being briefed an awful lot before the summit started. Where did that land? I mean, that was an odd one because in some ways that was agreed at the finance minister's meeting that took place, you know, ahead of the leaders' meeting. So we sort of we sort of knew the details on it. The leaders confirmed it, and it's effectively you know, a minimum rate of, of corporation tax for all countries to sort of stop what's regarded and what people talk about as the race to the bottom. Countries trying to attract investment to their particular location, so reducing the rate of corporation tax and reducing the amount of money that the taxpayer wants to get in, so the countries want to get in from, from corporate taxpayers. And that was tied in to trying to solve this problem about multinational tech companies who sort of shift their profits into low-tax jurisdictions and effectively don't pay tax anywhere. After years of negotiation, a deal to prevent the world's tech giants from avoiding billions of dollars of taxes. A deal many people thought would simply never happen. It's a difficult issue to resolve because a lot of these countries are domiciled in the United States, so you know the states are not particularly keen to lose their tax revenue, so you've got to find some sort of global agreement on that. And they seem to have made pretty decent progress on on that that it's not completely finished yet but as i say the the main building blocks of that were put together at the at the finance versus meeting so although i suppose you could say it was an achievement of carvis bay in some senses we knew about it in advance mm. and you mentioned china being one of the big issues that a lot of the people around the table wanted to talk about even if it didn't make it into the final communique tell me about the extra seats at the table this time because there were a few more countries invited in addition to the G7. 
Was that all directed towards China too? I mean, tell me about what they're now calling the D10. Um, so this is an idea of, I don't know to what extent it's kind of, it, it, it's going to be substantive in the longer term, but this is an idea that... Is this a one-off, yeah. do you think? Well, no, I think it was, I think it's a better way to describe it is, is as a trial run and whether, whether you do it by sort of slightly extending the G7 or whether you create a separate group. But it's, it's again, it's about sending a signal. It's about sending a signal that, you know, democracy is alive and well and that democratic countries have something to gain by being democratic and it's also attempt to sort of co-opt India very much towards aligning you know with the West and making it part of that group I think that's why India was there you know it was about showing that the G7 could also include Africa which is why South Africa were there South Korea and Australia obviously as well it's quite an interesting initiative I, I mean it's hard to say at this stage what exactly comes of it but you know Nevertheless, it is again after the Trump period an attempt to show that you know, Western democracies, as it were, have something to offer the world. We'll have more on the G7 in just a moment. But first... Hello, I'm Laura Pullman, New York correspondent for The Sunday Times. It's thanks to you I get to cover all things this unbridled city has to conjure up. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique, and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As the leaders of some of the most powerful countries in the world gathered for the G7, the backdrop for this crucial summit was the small seaside village of Carbis Bay in Cornwall. And for locals, it was an unusual brush with global politics. I'm Leitra Wheeler and I'm chief reporter with Cornwall Live, the main media news site in Cornwall. 
What was it like when, you know, the helicopters and the private jets actually started to land? Was there a lot of excitement around that? Yes, I mean, it was utterly bizarre. I live in Truro, you know, which is quite a few miles away, and they were coming over here. I think Marine One, the president's helicopter, went over my house, and it was something to see. It's like an alien craft, really. We don't see things like this in Cornwall. And speaking to people in Carbis Bay, you know, having these choppers landing in the hotel, loads of them said their windows were rattling, but they were all coming out. And it was it was a, a bit of a display, really, like some weird official Red Arrows type military display that people just haven't seen around here. What were the what were the great moments of, of the weekend for you and for, for locals? Well, obviously, being a reporter on the ground, you only see one aspect of it. You know, my, my job really was I based myself in Carbis Bay, where the summit itself was taking place. And I think I was about the only media that stayed in Carbis Bay. So it gave me a lovely insight into how residents were affected and their reaction to it and seeing the huge police operation. I mean, that's that's what I'm going to take away from this is seeing the security operation in place. And how, I have to say, amazing the police have been. As you're probably aware, there were about 6,000 police drafted in from 43 forces across mm. the country. Every police force, I believe, across Wales as well, and even Police Scotland as well sent officers. So it's been huge, absolutely huge. And being in this little quiet coastal village and having a police officer on the street, probably about every 10 foot, including armed officers, but yeah, it was. It, I went out on Friday night there, the end of the first day of the summit, and um, it, there was a real party atmosphere. There were people having garden parties, and there's one, basically one restaurant in Carvis Bay, and that was packed. <laughs> and basically, everybody was drunk by about seven o'clock. It was just an excuse for a bit of a sort of almost like you, you know a street royal street party, but for the G7. And for the entirety of the summit, Cornwall was basically how the world would view Great Britain, you know, sort of global Britain after after Brexit and everything else. You, you were kind of the showcase for the whole country. It looked amazing. The pictures were beautiful. It was all sort of perfect green seas and blue skies. It looked so idyllic. What What's the reality like on the ground? Well, it is idyllic. That's, that is one reality of it. it I mean, Cornwall is gorgeous. That's why <laughs> I live here. It's a fantastic place yeah. to live. Um, and Cornwall did show itself off beautifully those last couple of days when the sun came out. It, it looked amazing when you see the news footage. So I'm sure Boris Johnson and the UK government are very glad that they picked Cornwall. But there's another reality. There's a lot of poverty down here. We have some of the most poverty-ridden states and areas in the whole of Western Europe and not far from where the G7 was held, actually. There's an area of Penzance called Trinia, which has a lot of poverty. And the Campbell and Red Ruth areas, which, of course, a century ago were, were one of the richest areas of Europe, thanks to the um, tin and copper mining, an industry which has now died out, unfortunately. And those, those towns have never fully recovered. And there is a lot of poverty. So, you know, a lot of people down here are concerned that there's this one sided view of Cornwall. And that's and the G7 has sort of heightened that. But this has been going on for a few years now. And it seems to be reaching... A sort of peak Cornwall thing of tourism versus reality where we really don't need any more people coming down here but I don't want it all to be <laughs> negative though because it's you know as, as a Cornishman there, there's a pride about 
this world event being on your doorstep. And hopefully with the reporting, with things like this, talking to you on this podcast, with the national and international media here, they were made aware of the reality of Cornwall. The world leaders, when they were having their beach barbecue um, with the red arrows flying past, hopefully one of the chefs or waiters told them, oh, I mean, it's just down the road, there's people that are struggling to eat and using a food bank. So as long as that's reported and gets across, that would be brilliant. that final press conference was there a sense that this had been a, a huge success I mean obviously it does sound like the content was quite light but what was the feeling I thought Boris Johnson in his press conference was 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 slightly underpowered that's Oliver Wright again policy editor for the Times and you know he's a good salesman but I felt as a salesman the sales pitch as it were was a little bit limp and actually you know, listening to sort of Biden and Macron, they did a rather better job of studying the achievements of the summit than Boris Johnson did. You know, you could overestimate the significance and sort of wring your hands and say, well, they could have done this, they didn't do it. I mean, yeah, if I was going to give it marks out of 10, it's sort of six and a half, seven. <laughs> they kind of, you know, they got together, they didn't have any violent disagreements other than Brexit, which was to be expected. They started work on some of these issues. Remember, they haven't met for quite a while because of COVID. And, you know, let's see what comes of it in the months and years ahead. Did it feel like this was sort of um, a summit which was all about the pictures rather than the content? I mean, I thought it was interesting that sort of the, there was a, an event which was really very much on the margins, wasn't even part of the G7 really, which was Dr Biden, the, the First Lady, with the Duchess of Cambridge doing an event around early years learning, which seemed to get more attention than you know, any climate change policy or <laughs> yeah. any of the things that were actually on the agenda? Well, you know, it, it, it's all, you know, it's often all about the pictures. And, you know, there weren't many pictures from inside the summit. And those pictures that there were was sort of, you know, a group of people sitting around a, a desk, albeit with a lovely view of the beach in the background. But, you know, it doesn't beat Jill Biden and Kate sort of and children, you know, going, <laughs> it's sort of no comparison, really, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I think those people putting together the summit knew that, you know, you always, those things will be intricately planned to, and they know the images that they want and they want what the narrative is. I mean, at the end of that, what did we learn about our place in the world now? Did we get a sense of where we stand? Um, I think so. I think we showed that we still matter. We matter in part because of the sort of defence and security cooperation and our internationalist outlook. And, you know, it is true that even, you know, when we were part of the EU, one of the things that the EU looked to Britain for was its foreign policy experience, that it is a much more outward-looking nation than the vast majority of those countries that make up the EU. And I think we showed that again at, at the G7 summit and that, yeah, we can be important even though we're not part of the EU and... Yeah, the fact that Johnson does have a relationship with Biden, despite the sort of past history, is, I think, testament to those sort of more longer lasting institutional ties between Britain and the US in sort of foreign policy establishment, civil society, um, across a range of areas. And I think that was on, was on display at the summit. But also it showed that, you know, you can't just do Brexit, say it's all done, and... 
move on entirely, that you know we are hostages in a way to our history of EU membership and probably will be for, for some years to come. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Times policy editor Oliver Wright and chief reporter at Cornwall Live, Lee Trewheeler. You can read more of Oliver's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Joe Shanchana and James Shield. The executive producer is Poppy Damon and sound design was by Nigel Appleton. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do drop us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find us. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.